The year is 160 AD, the Roman Empire. The reign of the Emperor Domitian, the fierce persecutor of the church. A time for pain and heartache for the church, a time persecution, despised by the government, by the rulers. And in the city of Smyrna, in Asia Minor, a decree is given to arrest the local bishop, an elderly man by the name of Polycarp. So that the Roman troops, they, they find where he's staying, they enter the home, and interestingly enough, Polycarp serves them dinner. And they're shocked by his calm demeanor. He only has one request, that they allow him to pray for an hour, which they grant. He ended up praying for two. No one interrupted him. And when he was taken out, when he was led to an arena to stand before a Roman proconsul, a Roman judge, that Roman proconsul said to him, Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my Lord and Savior? Such unflinching allegiance to his king. What gave Polycarp such confidence? What gave him such boldness in the face of death? He knew he was part of a different kingdom. He knew he belonged to a different king. It wasn't the Roman Empire. It wasn't the Roman kingdom. He belonged to a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. He was called to kingdom life. Called to kingdom life. Can you open with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Paul writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side in the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is preserved and we have it in our hands before us in the language we can understand. I pray that you illuminate our minds to understand this passage before us. I pray that you speak through me. I pray that your name would be glorified, God. 
Let us listen to your word and not just be hearers of it, but doers. I pray this all in your name. Amen. So what is Paul's concern here? What is he trying to emphasize to the Philippians? What is he trying to highlight with this passage? It seems like he's giving them a couple of ingredients to what it means to live the Christian life. What it means to express the Christian faith in one's life. And so let's begin, let's jump into uh, verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy. Only. What is this only? How is it, how is it used here? Well, it's, it's a connecting piece between this passage and the one before. So in, in verses 18 through 26, Paul is entirely focused on his own concerns, his own experience, what he's going through. But then in verses 27 to 30, he shifts that focus onto the Philippians, their experiences, what he calls them to do, their life. And this only serves as this, this shift. It's, it's, um, it's even more connected to, specifically connected to verses 25 and 26, which says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So progress. The goal is progress. That's, that's his desire. That's why he wants to come and see them, right? So the only there is, is a way of him saying, I'm coming to you, but meanwhile, I want you to do these things. In other words, um, I'm coming. Whatever happens, as you guys wait for me, do these things. So there's this added level of of importance to these words that Paul is about to give in this only. This is of utmost importance for them to consider. So what does he follow that up with? Let your manner of life, let your manner of life. This is the, the key command in this whole passage and arguably the key command in the whole letter to the Philippians. Let your manner of life. This, this verb here, this command here, it has this nuance, this idea of living a certain way. It has uh, some political connotations in it. It could be even translated as live as a good citizen. The idea there is citizenship. At least it could, be, it could have been translated that way. It's, it's live your life as a good citizen. In other contexts, it's used for those who, who are good citizens in the Roman Empire. And this is a theme that Paul kind of uh, plays around with in the letter of Philippians. In chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, he says, For many of whom, and here he's, he's talking of those that have left the faith, the false teachers, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But what? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So why does Paul emphasize this idea of citizenship here? He does, it, he does it so much more in this letter than anywhere else, drawing out this idea. And it's probably because of what the city of Philippi itself was known for. See, uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was popular with retired members of the Roman military. Um, so there was a lot of former members of the military living there. And one of the benefits of serving in the Roman military 
was at the end of your term, if you survived, you were given Roman citizenship. And that was a big draw for a lot of people because Roman citizenship carried a lot of weight to it. It was a big deal. There was a sense of pride in being a Roman. I mean, what, there, what, what wasn't there to be proud of? It's the greatest empire of that time. And so there was this air of pride in Philippi about being Roman. So it's very likely that, that Paul is using this to his advantage. So what is he saying here? Philippians, you're called to be citizens, but not just citizens of Philippi, citizens of a different kingdom, citizens that have a different king. Citizens of a different kingdom. And how does he follow up this let your life, or let the manner of your life be? He uses the word worthy. <laughs> worthy. Worthy. What does this mean, worthy? A worthy citizen. A worthy citizen. A real citizen. An authentic citizen. Friends, the kingdom life is characterized by authenticity. The kingdom life is characterized by authenticity. We're called to live a certain way where people recognize something about us that is different. When, uh, during my time at Moody, um, I got to take a couple of classes for Greek. And uh, one of my professors, uh, who's dearly beloved by many students, he recently retired, was at Moody for over 30 years, um, one of the things he's known for is how strong his accent is. He's from the South. He grew up in the South. And uh, he's probably the most imitated professor on campus because everyone just loves his accent. It's just so different and so strong. And one time I was in his office, and he was telling me how when he was living in England, he was there for four years um, for his uh, Ph.D. studies. Um, when he would walk down the street and people would hear him talk, they would want to stop him and talk to him because his accent was just so unusual. I mean, you got you have someone from the South in America living in England, and they were just like random strangers would come up to him and just want him to talk to them because it was so different. It was noticeable that he was different. It was noticeable that he was a foreigner, a real foreigner, an authentic foreigner. They noticed that about him. We are called to be authentic foreigners. We belong to a king, different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. We're called to be the salt of the earth, the light that shines in the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are a, a walking witness to the gospel in the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, Yet how is this cultivated? What does this look like to cultivate such a thing? The thoughts and words and actions. We live in an age of information. We live in the age of Twitter. We live in the age of Instagram, media. We drown, we're drowned with information. We, we view our phones a lot. We're behind screens a lot. Constantly we are poured. We're just drowning in information. And that, you know, that cultivates how we think. It's for a lot of people, it cultivates how they live entirely. Their identity is shaped around what 
is being spoken to them from the screen. And it starts to come out in their speech. It comes out in how they think. It comes out in their behavior. But for a kingdom life, what cultivates our speech, our thoughts, our actions? Is it not this? Is it, is it not the word of God? Do we saturate our minds in the scriptures? Do we allow that to cultivate how we speak and how we think and how we act? Paul himself tells us in chapter 4, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. Right here, friends, this is what cultivates who we are. This is what cultivates an authentic citizen of the kingdom. And how does he follow up this? Paul continues, So that whether I come and see you or an absent, whether I come and see you or an absent. So what is he saying there? Your kingdom life is expressed in every part of who you are, in the public and in the private. In my seeing you, and when I come and I see you guys, and when I'm absent, when I can't see you guys, it's, it covers everything. It's every part of who you are. Every facet of your being is to be grounded in a kingdom life. Everything, all-encompassing, every part of you. There was a practice that explorers had, some of them at least, when they arrived in the new world, in the age of exploration, everyone was trying to swim across the sea, across the ocean. They had a challenge on their hands. When they would arrive, how are they going to motivate their men? You have this unknown land before you. What are you to do? Some of them, the first thing they did was burn the ships. And what was the message behind that? The message is, we're not even thinking about home. We're not even thinking about the past. We're looking forward. We have a mission in our hands, and I want you guys to be completely in. Everything, everything that you are, every facet of who you are, you're not looking to the past. You're not thinking about home now. We're thinking about the mission ahead of us. Don't think about the ships. What ships are still in your harbor? What from the past are you still clinging on to? Public and private. You know, we, we struggle with private devotion when no one sees, when no one knows. It takes integrity. You know, authenticity is tied really tightly with integrity. What, is like, what does private devotion look like? What does integrity look like in private devotion? The hidden prayer, the hidden reading and studying of God's word, the hidden fast. What does integrity look like there for you? I know I struggle in my own private devotion. Private and public, it's all-encompassing kingdom life he continues on that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side 
for the faith of the gospel. Friends, kingdom life is characterized by unity. Not just authenticity, but unity. He uses two verbs here, two thoughts, two ways of saying the same thing. Standing firm, striving side by side. It's communicating the same idea. Desire for them to be united in their faith. Let's explore these two these two phrases. Standing firm. It's a firm commitment. Fully committed in conviction or belief. Fully committed. This language is sometimes used in the context of battle, war, military context. And I imagine it, in my own mind, I imagine it as linear warfare. And what that means is if you've ever seen a, a painting or a drawing of the Revolutionary War or a movie, maybe you could recall that the, the, the men would line up shoulder to shoulder, and they would just march forward on command. And the other side would do the same, and they would meet in the middle, and they would stop and look at each other. And then the command is given, and they, and they draw their weapons, and they fire. And they don't move. It seems kind of silly from a modern warfare perspective, but that was, that was, that was um, a sense of honor in that, a sense of commitment to their commander and everything. And just imagine that. Just Imagine you're, you're in the front line and you're walking. You're stepping onto the, battles, the battlefield. You could, you could see your opponent right in front of you. You don't know if you're going to make it out. But you keep marching. Could part of that be the bond that you share with those side by side? Isn't it a lot easier to do that when you have someone shoulder to shoulder to do that with and not walk out by yourself? What is Paul trying to get at here? Kingdom life is unity. It's community. We, we fight together. We're a church. We're a body. We're, we're a community. We do this together. We go out onto the battlefield of life shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters. And he continues striving side by side. There's another metaphor that, is, that is, can be drawn out of here. This is often used in the context of athletics and sports, striving side by side. You can already see the analogy being painted. A sports team, they've, they've trained hard. They've been together for so long. They've, they've strived, they've trained, they've ate well and prepared well, and they get to, to the event. And without unity, they're not going to have success. And they know what it took. They know what it took to get there. How many sacrifices they made. How they've sweated together and, and, and fought together. And, and now they're out there and they, they've united to have success. What does it look like to stand firm, strive side by side here at CF? Could it look like Staying a little longer after the service and meeting someone new? Could it look like doing that before service and in the fellowship hall? Could it look like joining a community group? Could it look like getting involved with a ministry here? Standing firm, striving side by side. We need one another, church. We need each other in the walk of faith. This is not an individual thing, we need community. What would that look like for you? The sacrifices are you willing to make? 
unity. Paul continues on. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened in anything. This is connected to the to two previous statements. What Paul is saying is, while you are standing for him, while you are striving side by side, I want you to also not fear your opposition. Stand with courage against the opposition. Why does Paul need to say this to the Philippians? Not frightened by your opponents. Who are these opponents? Well, it's very likely that it's the, again, it ties back to Philippi as, as, a, as a haven, as a, a place that cultivates a pride for the emperor, a pride for the, for the empire itself. There was something called the cult of the emperor, where in every public gathering, every citizen was to give honor to the emperor. Praise, honor, allegiance that was solely to the emperor. Of course, Christians have a new king. Their allegiance lies elsewhere. That wouldn't sit well with the Romans. They were hated, they were despised. Paul tells them, be courageous. Kingdom life is characterized not just by authenticity, not just by unity, but by courage. Courage. And are we that far removed from that? In every age, Christians have faced opposition, whatever that looked like. It's connected to authenticity. If we are to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, we will face opposition. I had a friend who has one of the most radical conversion stories I've ever heard. He came to faith at the age of 16. And before that, his life was so reckless. Um, by the age of 15, he was dealing drugs. He was using drugs. His life was just a complete mess. And then one day, he was in church for some reason. And he was sitting in the second row. And the preacher at the end gave him an altar call. And he, he was describing that experience to me, how he was trembling because he knew he had to go up. And he told me he, he grabbed the, the front pew because he didn't want to go up. In the end, he did. And he went up and wept. The minister prayed for him. And his life was like that, changed completely. There was no desire to go back desire for that life anymore. He was so radically changed that he skipped school for the next couple of days because he would wake up early in the morning, drive to church to pray, go back home, take a nap, and then read scripture for the whole day after that, and then fall asleep and do that again day after day. Just a crazy transformation. And of course, all of his friends are very confused. All his, all his buddies, very confused. And slowly, one after the other, they all left him. Why? Because he refused to compromise. He refused to compromise and they left. 
It takes courage to refuse to compromise. It takes courage in the, in the face of a culture that preaches compromise to the church to stand courage against that. It takes courage to stand up for our faith at our jobs, at our schools. It takes courage to stand up to a culture of death, culture that redefines marriage. It takes courage to stand up to the trends and ideologies that are fed our way through the media. It takes courage to stand against that. And Paul tells them, do not be afraid of your opponents. Do not be afraid. And he, and he ends the verse by saying, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Where does he ground their hope? He grounds their hope in Christ and the one who will make all things new in the end. The one who will bring justice that will bring restoration in the end. That is our hope. That's how why we can be courageous. Because we have a God who, who loves us. We have a king who will reign. We have a king who will return to establish his kingdom. That is our hope. That's why we can have courage. He grounds it in an eternal perspective. He stamps eternity on their eyes. What does he finish with? And this from God. Least any of this be a plea to our doing, a legalistic claim of, you know, let your life, you have to be worthy. He grounds all of this, the the worthiness, the authenticity, the unity, the striving together, standing firm, all this is from God. He is the ground of it all. That's a message of hope. When we don't see unity, when we don't see, in our own life, we don't see our authenticity, we're not courageous. And yet he says, this is from God. He is the one that is the ground. He is our hope. He is our sure foundation. The eternal hope is the root of our courage. That's where it comes from. It's all grounded in God. He finishes his thought in verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and here that I still have. Friends, the kingdom life is not only about authenticity, unity, courage. It's also characterized by faithful suffering. It's connected to the previous thought. Where does that suffering come from? It comes from the opposition. And he, he uses a very interesting word here. It has been granted to you. Granted to you. That could be translated as gifted. So he's gifted to you not only to believe, but also suffer. It makes sense for, you know, it makes sense that he gifted us for us to believe, but to suffer. Gifted us for suffer, what does that mean? When my parents moved to the States in 1998, they founded a whole different culture, different language, different culture, different metric system, different food, different clothing, especially for my father who was working at the time. Very uncomfortable. 
to be tossed into that your whole life you knew a certain way of life you were comfortable you got it all figured out and then just thrown into something completely new just the uncomfortability of that quite a bit of suffering in that why was that uncomfortable because he was not used to it. he was different he was from he was from a different country why are we uncomfortable we belong to a different kingdom. We await a, a heavenly home. This is temporary. We're only pilgrims here. We're passing through. We, we have a different way of life because we belong to a different king. Granted to you to suffer. See, suffering has this refining quality to it. It has this sanctifying quality to it. It reminds us that we're not home yet. It reminds us that there is something coming. It reminds us that this is not the way it's supposed to be. That in the end, Christ will come and he will bring restoration and he will bring hope. It reminds us of the, the eternal. Suffer. If we identify with our Lord who himself suffered, we too will suffer. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pointing to the eternal, pointing to the, the true king. Of course, suffering is not easy. But we have one who has identified with us. Our king suffered himself. Look at the context of this passage. Look what comes next. Philippians 2, the, the Christ hymn. What does Paul say? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Lord suffered. We will too. But we are not a people without hope. We have one who alleviates our pain, one who is there, one who sees, one who knows, one who knows that feeling, that angst, the suffering of the world, and he will fix it. He's coming back. We are citizens of a kingdom that will. established completely in his coming we feel that now we are part of that kingdom now but there is a time when all pain will be wiped away every tear will be dried and we will look at our king face to face and know that it is the end we have most we will not suffer anymore there's no more opposition we'll be completely united we'll be completely sanctified completely authentic citizens of the kingdom that is our hope we could rest in that the king called to the kingdom life. Called to authenticity, unity, courage, and to suffer faithfully. Church, I just want to say that it has been a pleasure being 
a kingdom citizen alongside you guys. These past couple of months, to serve with you, to stand firm with you, to strive side by side for the gospel, to be united as one. Citizens of an eternal kingdom, that is our call and that is our joy. And I'm so glad that this is not the end. We may depart for a moment. I may leave for a moment, but one day we will all be restored. That is our hope. Cling to that hope. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are the king. You're the sovereign king. That in the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, when the church is pained, Lord, we have a sure hope. We have a sure hope in you that you will restore all things, that you will bring it all to your hands and will fix it all, God. We'll establish your kingdom and we are citizens of that kingdom. You have called us your own. We have a place at the table, adopted us into your family. Call us sons and daughters. You're a God who loves us. Give us strength, Lord, to live the kingdom life. Give us strength, God, to be united, to be courageous, Lord, to stand firm together, to strive side by side. Your name be glorified. Amen.